This is the second part on typology. Typology and history, capital H, history, are an interconnected um, aspect of the cosmic reality. I know those sound like some really big words, so what do I mean by that? Well, there really are two ways to look at history, and it depends on what your spiritual bearings are. Now, there is the horizontal view of history and the vertical view. What do I mean by that? The vertical view of history looks at history as something to be saved from, predominantly. And you will see this approach to history usually in Platonic thought from the ancient Greeks. And that carries forward into the Gnostics, which were the significant heretical group. And really, they were more than a group. They were a significant religious uh, movement community in the first, second centuries. And they were, for all intents and purposes... Christendom's greatest threat and continues to be today, which is an interesting thought. So in that Platonic and then Gnostic view, history is something to be saved from. And so history is bad. History is something that we don't want to deal with if you're a part of that, of that mindset. And this mindset has really been carried through from Gnosticism and Paganism into the present day secular world, secular religion. That's why we have so much history revisionism. It's why we have so much cultural imperialism, which is basically looking down the nose at those who have come before a generation or a culture or a society, presuming that a society that is more advanced with more advanced technology, more advanced philosophy, more advanced political systems, that somehow that society is better than every society that came before it simply because of these advances, which is not true. Progress, as C.S. Lewis points out, is not necessarily towards something good or better. Okay. Salvation from history is the vertical view of history, something that you want to get away from onto the next plane of reality or the next plane of existence. Uh, the Gnostics view the human body the creation as 
something inherently evil and to be escaped, which is con contrary to what God says in Genesis when he creates. And then at the end of every day of creation, he says, this is good. Okay, so those with this vertical view of history do not look at the creation as good, like God does. Now, this isn't the same thing as original sin, which is a different topic for a different uh, recording. So then we are left with the horizontal view, which is the proper Christian view of history. And in the horizontal view, salvation occurs incarnationally through history. So history is something that the church experiences and we understand God to work through the historical timeline to achieve his goals, which of course is the salvation of all those who believe in his son and into the next eternal epoch. Um, now related to this, oh, so just to kind of put a period on that, the new creation is part of that horizontal view of history. So we're going horizontally through history to the new creation, which is eternal and will be a significant aspect of these recordings, this, this series. We're not there yet. But two kind of sub themes, sub uh, ideas, I guess, of this particular aspect of typology and its relationship to history is two words that you may have heard before, one called the arch narrative and the other one called meta history. Now, these are academic terms, but they're still useful. The arch narrative is the overarching story, cosmic story, which of course is Jesus and his being sent to earth into our history to interact on a real historical human timeline with other humans and the Roman Empire and, and the Jewish authorities and all these things. Um, but that the arch narrative is that God, which we see in John 3. John 3 is the arch narrative. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Um, that is the arch narrative really kind of boiled down to a nutshell. Um, it's, it's, it's the overarching story of salvation, of God saving not just human creatures, but the creation too, which St. Paul talks about in Romans 8. And I think uh, Peter gets into as well in his epistles. And then the other one is meta-history, okay? So if an arch narrative is the overarching, predominant narrative of the cosmos, meta-history, meta is a word, uh, is, is a prefix that you attach when you understand something to be behind the thing that you see, okay? So... Metahuman. You see the human, but then behind what you see, there's something else going on. Okay. And that is really where typology and history really interact because 
you will see that history is occurring, but then behind that history, God is acting. You see that especially in the Bible. You know, you have a battle. Joshua, on the surface, you have Joshua and the Israelite army against Jericho. But through that battle, God is conquering the enemies of his people, but they're also his enemies. They are a culture aligned with the devil. And that cosmic battle between God and the devil is often behind what we see in history. Uh, you can see that with World War II. You can see that with any significant war, even one that's not in the Bible. Because at the end of the day, war is an acting out, even though it's real nations being pitted against each other and cultures and things like that. The devil is still acting through those nations and God is acting through other nations to carry out his justice, to defeat the devil and his forces. This is what um, Paul's especially getting at in Ephesians 6, that we don't wrestle against, our true enemies are not flesh and blood, but the cosmic powers, the, the, the powers of darkness in the heavens, okay? What Paul's saying is what we see historically in front of us, even though that is a real struggle, that isn't the real true struggle. It's what's happening behind those historical events. That's meta-history. And history is often or even always typical of meta-history. And certainly related to that is eschatology, which is the end times. And all the um, all the the elements connected to the apocalyptic literature and the revelation of Jesus to John um, at the end of Scripture. Now we need to understand too that there are two extremes and two fallacies connected to this horizontal vertical interplay of typology. Uh, the first extreme, let's take the two extremes first, and the first extreme is seeing Christ in every detail of the Old Testament so that the Old Testament loses its identity. This is essentially historical minimalism, if you want to use an, uh, an academic term. But you're basically, you're not allowing history to truly be history. Like as if using the example I just said, as if the Battle of Jericho is only about the cosmic battle and it's not actually about a country being conquered by another country so they can possess the land and live in it. Good guys versus bad guys. Um, if you want to take kind of an absolutist term. Um, and, you, and you can't do that with typology. If you're using typology... So that the Old Testament simply becomes exclusively a meta-history account, then you're actually doing injustice. Because 
that's kind of what modern historians who aren't Christians, that's what they're saying. They're saying the Bible really isn't true history. It's just a story. It's one big myth. It's one great big piece of Tolkien or, or the Narnia Chronicles. It's no better than fiction with maybe some nonfiction details thrown in there. Okay, that's, that's, that's what happens when you overplay your hand of typology in the Old Testament. And the second extreme is limiting legitimate types to those overtly revealed in the New Testament. And this effectively blunts the character of prophecy. So you've got the, the other side of this horse, to use Luther's analogy of a drunken man falling off one side of the horse, you got to be careful that you don't, in trying to prevent yourself from falling off one side of the horse, that, that you don't fall off the other side, making your case. And a lot of times, theologians who do not have much for typology, they do their best to limit typology's value or influence by only allowing it to be overt, obvious, New Testament um, uh, play, you know, playing out in, in, the, in the New Testament. It doesn't allow prophecy to have depth at, at all. Um, now the, the, the two fallacies. Uh, the first fallacy is over-allegorization of text so that all original intent and meaning are lost, which is effectively turns the text into a hyper-subjective experience, um, which is a problem, obviously. You know, if, if all you see in Scripture is allegory, one for one, this represents this, now you've taken typology, you've approached typology and effectively neutered it because typology is always pointing to a fulfillment of itself. But in an allegorical approach, there can be no fulfillment, no greater fulfillment in real time, in real history. It's, it's just... Um, one thing representing another thing. And the second fallacy is, again, falling off the other side of the horse, the denial of typology as legitimate biblical, as a legitimate biblical device for exegesis or understanding. Um, and you can't do that alone because scripture itself speaks of typology directly as being a legitimate instrument of understanding the Old Testament, of understanding the New Testament through the Old Testament. And you can see this in Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 11.19, and in Colossians 2.16, where the, the actual word typology shows up in Scripture, legitimizing the use of typology. Um. Lutherans have a very uneasy relationship with typology. Uh, and that's largely because it's been abused by 
theologians in the evangelical tradition as they attempt to uh, proof text their approach, especially to eschatology, to end times matters. Um, but just because a group of theologians decides to abuse a legitimate biblical literary device does not mean that that device isn't to be used or should be minimized. Because again, that just means that instead of using proper discernment and wisdom, you're just simply trying to do an end run around the opponents that are misusing it so that you don't need to deal with that whole group. And it, that's not how it works. I mean, that's a bad precedent to set because lots of aspects of Christianity, of Christian theology, is abused by different groups o over the centuries. And if we abandoned every single aspect of theology or doctrine because it was abused by some group, then there wouldn't be much left of the faith of doctrine. So we just got to learn to defend the right use of literary devices and uh, theological terms and things like that. Um, so kind of along those terms, the, the next principle we want to keep in mind is that, and it's, in, it's a pretty simple principle. Valid typology is both eschatological and Christological. You need both. If either of these are missing, then the typology isn't being used properly. Uh, you will find often eschatology is in the exclusive by certain theologians from certain um, groups. And the Christology isn't there. It's all about, you know, dispensations or it's all about Israel or, you know, they're, they're trying to prove the rapture or, you know, millennialism, you know, that this idea that, of Jesus coming to rule for a thousand years, things like that. Um, that isn't Christological. That's, that's Jesus as a, as an aspect of their eschatological, um, mindset and they're using the topology to serve that mindset, uh, but proper Christological balance to the use of typology makes sure that when that typology is, that when that device is being used, that, you know, when we think of Christology, we're thinking of the sacraments, we're thinking of the dual nature of Christ, both his human and his divine natures. Um, we're thinking of the incarnation, you know, we're thinking of all these other things too. And if these things cannot be present in a use of typology, then it's not a legitimate use. And I think it tends to be over eschatological more than over Christological. I, I think that tends to be where the, where the abuse is. Um, some really cool examples of the proper use of this that I've always enjoyed, uh, particularly in the writings of N.T. Wright. 
is this notion that the earthly tabernacle or temple is also a type of the heavenly temple. Um, and uh, also Jesus. Jesus, you know, in John 4, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman about the, the, how God wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth, and that the temple that the Jews worship in in Jerusalem is not the true temple. But neither is what the Samaritans are saying is the, the, the true location for their worship. Jesus is referring to himself. Jesus is, is the true tabernacle that is mobile. It is not fixed. Jesus adventures with his people to the end of time and then into the eternal kingdom. Um, We also want to bear in mind, this is kind of going back to when we were talking about the horizontal view of history and the meta-history and, and the arch narrative and those things. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that the holy war of biblical histories fought both and often simultaneously in heaven and earth. That's another kind of a of, of view of Ephesians 6, what Paul's talking about with the cosmic powers. And it's not truly against flesh and blood. It's just something to keep in mind that when we read historical narratives, not only um, not only biblical, but especially biblical, when we read of the various wars going on in the Old Testament, um, we got to keep in mind that there that these wars that are playing out, and I think a a really cool idea is which really isn't even a war, but the beginning of Exodus when Pharaoh is um, oppressing the, the Hebrews in Egypt. Uh, and I've, I've gone through this Bible study, which is really fun, looking at the cosmic view of what is going on in Exodus 1 and 2. And when you know what to look for, and it's right there. I mean, we're not talking about hidden codes and things. You just got to know what to look for and one of the key things that will unlock this is in the old testament always pay attention to the place names and do your research and find out what those place names mean and what their significance is and that will help to unlock that cosmic view and you will begin to see the biblical history overlaid upon the cosmic war that's going on behind it. That's the meta-history that we were talking about. Um, an important element of, since we're talking about history, you know, something we need to keep in mind as Christians is that Old Testament history is Christian history. And really all that we're saying here is that we don't want to separate the Old Testament and the New Testament too much. I mean, they're very distinct in our Bibles. But when you approach Scripture, and I think in some ways this is the benefit of the lectionary, although the lectionary doesn't always do a good job of this. You have an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, and then an epistle reading. It actually allows, if they do it right, it allows you to see how the Old Testament history relates to the New Testament history. 
And we have to keep in mind that in the time of Jesus and the apostles, the scriptures, the New, New Testament scripture was just being written. The only scripture they had was the Old Testament. So, of course, the Old Testament history belongs properly in the realm of Christian history. Because that's what the, that's, that was the scriptures that Jesus was always referring to, and, and St. Paul and the apostles, all the other apostles. Um, and the key type there is Israel. Jesus is Israel personified. That's where you get the beginning of Matthew. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's why Matthew is saying that that prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus is Israel. When Jesus goes and is baptized by John the Baptist, okay, and then he's going to go out into the wilderness, Jesus is Israel. He's going into those waters as a representative of his people and really all people, but his people in that moment. And then he's going to go out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And what is that representing? That Jesus is, is accomplishing in the desert over those 40 days and nights everything that the Israelites did not accomplish when they were unfaithful and had to wander the desert for 40 years. You know, that's what we're supposed to see there. Okay, so, you know, we may hear these terms like old Israel and new Israel, um, which really aren't biblical terms. They're, they're more uh, understandings of, of thought, and, and they're not always useful. But we need to keep in mind that old Israel and new Israel, there's a continuity there. And Jesus is the continuity. He is the thing that bridges the gap. And so God's people of old through Jesus, are also God's people of the new. And we should understand new here in terms of renewal. Not new as in something different. It's a different covenant. But Jesus is Jewish, so there's still a continuity. Okay. The history of Israel, if we want to kind of put a cap on it, is our redemptive history. The accents and idioms of the Old Covenant are echoes of the New. Otherwise, we have abbreviated our canon by an entire testament, which is indeed the case in conservative scholasticism. And what I mean by that is conservative scholasticism really kind of minimalizes the Old Testament, and which is a problem because that was the Marcion heresy. Marcion was the, was the guy from, I think, the second century who wanted to chop up the Old Testament and marginalize the Old Testament and make the New Testament predominate as if it was replacing. And remember, Jesus himself says, I have not come to replace the Old Testament the scriptures or the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. Okay. 
And, you know, there's a little inside baseball here that in the Lutheran world, our scholastics essentially over-nuance doctrine. And we make semantics the rule instead of a useful rhetorical tool. And this is what some Lutherans in recent decades have called dogmatism, which is not something that we want to fall into. And that brings us to our, our last principle and one that I really like from Hummel. And that is that typology is how the Holy Spirit speaks and reveals the nature of God's salvation work through the Son, Christ Jesus. He actually articulates it as, in many ways, typology works beyond all articulation in human syllables. And what he means by that is, it's an art. It requires wisdom. It's not something that you can approach scientifically with a, with a, a rational mind. Typology is something that requires technique, trial and error, You have to train yourself to look for it, but not to overlook. Either overlooking it in terms of you don't see it, or over or hyper hyper searching for it, if you will, which is you know looking for it too much, looking for it everywhere, which is part of the errors and fallacies we we just discussed. Luther, in his large catechism in the introduction, which, or the longer preface as it's sometimes referred to has a really neat way of looking at it too in paragraph nine, where he says, yet there are manifold benefits and fruits still to be obtained. If it, meaning scripture, be daily read and practiced in thought and speech, namely that the Holy Ghost is present in such reading of scripture and repetition and meditation and bestows ever new and more light and devoutness so that it is daily relished and appreciated better as Christ promises in Matthew 18. And that's a really beautiful passage in, in the large catechism to encourage Christians to be in the word and that process that he's talking about, which is perhaps something that we'll be talking about Maybe not specifically, but it's something you're going to hear referred to quite a bit in this audio journal. And that is the three-pronged approach to studying scripture that Luther articulated based on his experiences as a monk. Um, not everything he did as a monk was bad. Not everything about the monastic system was bad. Most everything by the medieval age was bad, but one of the things that Luther thought was quite useful was this three-pronged approach, which is known as 
oratio, meditatio, and tentatio. And basically, that translates to oratio is effectively prayer. Prayer that comes out of God's Word. Praying the Psalms is one of the best forms of oratio that Christians can do. But also prayer inspired by the reading of God's Word. Uh, Psalm 119 is probably the magnum opus of oratio. So, for Bible studies, I will often pray a selection of Psalm 119 because so much of that psalm is about the Word and praying for wisdom to study the Word. And the second part of that, meditatio, is exactly what it sounds like, meditation. Meditating on the Word, um, taking your time to read it and process it and and ruminate, think on it, ponder it, uh, which is kind of a problem today because so many things are clamoring for our attention and we are so oversaturated with data pouring in from our phones, TVs, radio, other digital devices, media, that it's all clambering for our attention. It's the devil's way of clogging our system, creating a logjam so that we feel like we don't have the time to meditate properly. And often many Christians don't. And that is why there is a lot of increasing scriptural illiteracy because we just don't feel like we have the time. Before it was, we don't have the time to meditate on the word at home before bed or when we wake up. But now it's to the point where we can't even get to church. We don't have time to go to church because we have to work or we have the kids have this or that going on on Sundays. You know, there's no sacred time anymore. The world has no desire for it because the devil acting behind the world's actions doesn't want us to have time with our Lord. Um, but it is essential and it is vital to growing in wisdom, to growing in the faith, to have time to meditate. And tentatio um, really is kind of what I was already just talking about, struggling with the word. Tentatio, tentatio there isn't really a good English translation of that Latin word, uh, but effectively it is struggling with the word to apply it in our lives. It's a literally translated it's a fierce tense struggling with the word what does the word as we meditate on it what does this word mean to me as i apply it to my life as i think of ways to apply it in my vocation as a father as a husband as a christian in my church and in my community um how are we to take what Jesus tells us, the word incarnate? So all of the word is Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. That's all Jesus's word. Um, how are we to apply this? And even the notion that I was just referring to of taking the time to meditate, taking the time to pray is itself a struggle as the world is, is, is trying its best to grab our attention and to distract us. Okay.
So we'll leave it at that and uh, pick up with another topic in the in the next recording.